And tonight we're going to look at the journey, Genesis chapter 12. So please open your Bibles there, Genesis chapter 12. Well, y'all know that life is a journey. Uh, it's been said that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in much the same way, that's how our faith is. Our faith is a walk. It's not a run per se, although there's imagery of races in 1 Corinthians 9, running the race with endurance. But our, our Christian life is described as a walk, and it's a walk of faith, and we walk by faith and not by sight. So we're going to talk about that tonight, the journey of faith. Let's pray one more time. Father, we just want to thank you for this gathering tonight on this Wednesday night, and we want to thank you for all the precious people that have come here tonight to hear from you. So it is our desire, Father, that we want to pray a bit of a dangerous prayer right now, that you would search our hearts. And if there's anything in our hearts that's stumbling our walk, uh, taking us on routes that we should not be walking, um, leading our steps anywhere except the path that you have for us, would you remove that from our hearts and lead us in the everlasting way? David even prayed, Lord, save me from presumptuous sins. Let my heart be clean before you. And when I make a misstep, and I'm certain to do that, uh, quickly prod me back to that right path. The path has already been blazed by Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith and our faith walk. He blazed the trail in his blood, He's already saved us and called us, but Lord, we still need to walk. We still need to respond to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and we're to walk by faith. And so tonight, Lord, as we study this great passage, this great section about Abram's journey into Canaan and all that that means, I pray that you would bless our time. I pray that you'd speak to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that application points would jump off the page so that we might hear from you tonight and be more uh, molded into the image of your precious son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Genesis 12, look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, Genesis 12, 1, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Abram's call was to leave everything familiar behind, and that's quite a challenge. Genesis 12, 2 says, and I, there's going to be five I wills by God in this section. You might want to mark them. I will make you a great nation, first promise. Seven promises, five I wills. I will bless you, make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. We talked about the fact that when God blesses us, it's for us to be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, the ESV has dishonors or disdains you, I will curse. And in you, how many? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Satan made five I will statements in Isaiah chapter 14. And he talked about, I will exalt myself. I will ascend. And God said, no, you won't. You won't do it. I'm going to throw you down. But when God makes a promise to us, when he says, I will do something, you can be sure that that promise is going to come to fruition. It's going to come to pass. When God makes a promise, he is always true to his promises. But the point from the promise to the realization is the challenge in life. Because we don't always get right there. We have promises that God has given us, but it's a journey, and sometimes it seems a bit of a winding road to get and realize the promises. And that's what Abram discovered. He's been given a promise that he's going to have this great nation, that he's going to inherit this wonderful land. There's only a couple of problems. One, he doesn't own the land. And two, he doesn't have any offspring to be a great nation. So God's making promises that are not yet realized. And so Abram has to really decide whether he's going to take God at his word. Abram becomes a picture of the believer navigating through this world, living life based upon promises, just passing through a pilgrim, if you will, in this world. And what are we living for? A promise that because I live, 
you will live also. A promise about salvation, a promise about resurrection, a promise about a new millennial, uh, a new uh, heaven and earth where there will be a millennial reign, where there will be peace, a place where righteousness will dwell. Abram is a picture of every one of us. I haven't seen Jesus yet, but I love him. I've felt him. I've sensed him. I've known his word. I've known his spirit. He has not left me alone. He's not left me an orphan. I have his Holy Spirit as the down payment assuring what's ahead, but I haven't come into the full realization of the promises. And so I'm journeying through this life just like you, but I've banked my eternity on promises that Jesus made. And it's not some blind faith that I have. My my faith in Christ is based upon a real historical figure named Jesus who rose from the dead in the very history in which we live. We believe that. There's more evidence for the resurrection than for any event in antiquity. You guys heard Charlie Campbell. How many of you heard Charlie Campbell? Seven evidences why you can uh, why your Bible is sure and certain. Pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? And he could have spent another couple hours with us. So this document that we study is living, it's alive. 66 books, 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, written by 40 plus authors. But one central theme, because the ultimate author is God, and the message of the Bible is redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. We were sold into the slave market of sin, and we were purchased by his blood. And we're headed into a promised land a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where Eden will be in some way restored, where the curse will be lifted. And Abram was walking and he hadn't seen everything. And in fact, he had been given a command that he was just to go and God would show him where the land was and what it was. And all guys say, of course, totally understand that. Just get in the car and we'll figure it out. Amen? All the men said, amen. All the women said, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's not how you do things. It always is a marriage stretching time, isn't it, in the car? It can be just so wonderful. Anyway, so (laughs) seven promises. I will bless those who bless you. And that indeed came true in Abram's life. In fact, we're going to see in this story that Abram's going to go down to Egypt and there's going to be a man, Pharaoh, who tries to manipulate the situation or take his wife and it's not going to be good for Pharaoh. And those who blessed Abram were blessed and those who disdained or cursed him were cursed. And that promise goes all the way till today to the nation of Israel Because from Abram's loins comes Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And through that line comes Jesus. And through him, all the uh, families of the earth are blessed. And so this is how it works now. And the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. And I do not believe that that has changed. And I don't believe that they've been replaced by the church but I believe that the Bible teaches clearly that he's going to work again in Israel and their eyes are going to be open and they're going to look upon him whom they pierce and they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And so Abram starts the journey. He's given some details, but not a ton. And off he goes. Your faith journey, by the way, is typically going to be like that. It'll be one step at a time. God will just say, trust me with this and I'll show you more. And that's how you got to do it, folks. Uh, God rarely in my life has ever revealed the full plan. He's just said, trust me with the next thing. Trust me with the next thing. And so look at verse four. So Abram went forth. That's what faith does. Faith goes forth. You might want to mark that. You see, faith, the expression of faith is to move. It's to move with God. Faith goes forth. It goes forward. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. It wasn't some blind going forth. He was obeying God. And Lot went with him. And that's uh, Abram's nephew because his dad has died. Lot's dad has died. And Abram stepped in. And Abram, 
get this, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, before we picture him as an old geezer, remember he, lifespans were still a little longer in these days. And Abram did live, Abraham did live to 175. So this is about middle age or a little less for him, but he's still 75. He's no spring chicken when he sets out for the promised land. And this should give all of us hope because sometimes we think, well, maybe I'm too old to change or maybe I'm too old to respond to that call that God had on my life 20 years ago. And some of you, I know you're in that position. You felt God kind of tugging at you. You felt like there was a call on your life and somehow you put it off. And you're wondering now, can that call be realized? Well, remember in Abram's life, there was a place where he stopped. They were supposed to go into the land of Canaan. Uh, Brandon, you got that slide back there? Oh, he's not even back there. I showed you a map last time, but oh, there it is. Okay, so remember he started off near the Persian Gulf on the right. Uh, there, right there. And he journeyed up this way. And this is where he stayed about the halfway point, but he was supposed to go into the land of Canaan down here on the left. And he stopped here and he spent years here. And this is where his dad died. So by the time he leaves Haran, he's lost a brother and he's lost his father. And he's, you know, some people have said that that was an expression of halfway obedience uh, staying there in Haran. How many Christians do you know that have done a halfway obedience with God? Is that you? They say, I'll, I'll go here, Lord. They start, you ever do this? You start negotiating with God. You'll tell him how far you'll go. God says, I want you over here. And you go, well, can I stick my toe in the water and see how it feels? I only go in if it's 86 degrees. <laughs> really? And so Abram had a time in his life when he seemed to park as well. He wasn't fully obedient to the Lord. And yet when he celebrated in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, he celebrated as a man of faith. None of his foibles are mentioned there. None of his uh, times when he parked or maybe hesitated. Isn't that good news for you and me? That God celebrates our faith even sometimes when maybe we are not ready to give everything we have. And so he went forth, Lot was with him, he departed from Haran, and it was time for him to trust God. He went forth, God told him, go forth, verse 1, chapter 12, he went forth. And I just want to give you something from my notes. We find that faith is a call, it is a response, and it is a journey. Faith begins with a call. You must respond to that call. And then it's the beginning of a journey. Faith is not just about agreement to a set of facts. Faith is not just about a set of ideals that you say, I'll embrace these if this is the Christian way. Faith is relational trust. You might want to write that down. Faith always springs from a relationship. In fact, we say in the Christian church that if you want to walk with the Lord, it's got to start with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to realize that he paid for your sin and he died on the cross. And that's the only way you can be saved as a gift. But then the rest of your life is about relational trust. And any relationship that you and I have on a human level gets developed over time. You learn to trust more as you journey on in life with somebody. And God is eminently trustworthy. We know that. But that relationship of trust still builds on a spiritual plane. And so there's a call, there's a response, and you must respond if you're being called. You got to go if God's calling you to go. It's a journey. It's going to be a pathway over time. And it's relational trust. I want to show you something in the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So just turn to your right a little bit. Numbers 32. By the way, Moses penned the first five books of the Old Testament and Numbers is one of them. Numbers 32, look at verse 11 with me. Numbers 32, verse 11. 
It says, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward, 3211, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not, what? Follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Only two men followed the Lord fully of that generation. Two. And scholars believe that there was more than a million of them that left Egypt. And there was two men who followed the Lord fully. There's an old quote, it's bounced around the church for quite some time, that the world has yet to see what God can do through a man or a woman whose heart is fully sold out to God. And I realize even in my own life, being a pastor, studying the Bible, preaching the gospel regularly, that still my heart tends towards halfway obedience. It can be more comfortable there. It's, it's a little easier to hang out in Haran sometimes than go into Canaan and face uncertain things. And, and one, one thing that we know about the land is that there were giants in the land and it wasn't a difficult place for conquest. The fact is that the land that was promised to Abram already belonged to other people. He was going to have to watch this progress over time. And in fact, we know from the unfolding of the Bible that he never really realized even a parcel of land. He was just simply passing through. He lived in tents, which is a symbol of, of impermanence. The only thing that I think that he ever really owned was the uh, area of the tomb or the graveyard uh, for Sarah. It says of King Solomon, David's son, that he did not follow the Lord fully in 1 Kings eleven six as David, his father had done. That tells me that David following the Lord fully did not mean that David didn't make mistakes. Get that out of your head right now. Because if you believe that following the Lord fully means you'll be sinless, you're wrong. That's never going to happen. You're going to make mistakes. But following the Lord fully is about your heart. It's about what you want to do to honor the Lord. And the way that Solomon got hung up is by the many women that he brought into his life. And he, in order to appease them, he built high places for them and he dishonored God. And God was mad at Solomon, even though Solomon asked for wisdom and was given wisdom, yet he made some huge blunders. And I just want to ask you a question. This is an application question. As you turn to Hebrews 11, turn to Hebrews 11. There's going to be a day when your, your walk with the Lord is going to be assessed, not for salvation, but for a reward. And heaven's going to know how fully you followed. Amen. Everything's going to be open on that day. God knows. This is not about perfection, but this is about direction. This is about what kind of Christian do you want to be? A quarter of the way, halfway. What do you want to do? Do you want to walk into the promises or not? Do you want to be used by God in a major way or not? In Hebrews 11, it says, and by the way, the longest section in this great celebrated hall of faith the longest section belongs to Abraham. Four times it says he did something by faith. It starts in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abraham, Hebrews eleven eight, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You can, guys, you can show that to your wife now. Just mark that verse. By faith, he lived as an alien or a pilgrim in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He was a foreigner when he went in there, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, Abraham 
wasn't just focused on Canaan. He was focused on something much greater, much more significant. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Our culture tells us that we need to hunker down. We need to set up uh, characteristics of permanence. We need a home, maybe a second home. We need to plant our roots deep. And some of you who moved a lot as a kid, you know the value of that. My wife moved many times growing up because her uh, dad was uh, serving in the military. And so she didn't know a whole lot of permanence. So now we've been in the same home for 20 years and she really appreciates that. And she doesn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> and so we try to set up all this stuff about permanence and we want to settle and we, and we, we want to plan for retirement. We want to, you know, we want to do all the right things. And, and that's totally understandable, but we're doing all that in a place where the one thing we know for sure is that it's impermanent. The message of the world is to set up your stuff and make sure you got it all together. And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, and then you're going to give it to somebody else when you die and you don't know what they're going to do with it. So you spend your life amassing wealth and amassing this and that. And the one thing that you know for sure is you're going to leave it for somebody else and then they're going to leave it to somebody else. And in some cases, people leave their stuff to the government because they don't do proper paperwork. Oops. And so we have all this drive and, and we're doing this in a world where we know we're not going to last. Newsflash, nobody gets out alive. Nobody. One generation when Christ returns will not experience physical death. But look, that reality should cause us at least to understand that we don't put all our stock here. And Jesus said that very thing. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you worry about will be what? Added unto you. I'm not sure. I really believe it. <laughs> and so the world's messages are, we've got to have security. And, and, and we all understand that. But the Bible's message is this. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. This is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears then, or is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You got to be able to tell yourself, I'm simply passing through. The question is, where are you going? Do you know? You know, people make all these plans, but they don't plan for the longest stretch of time that most people say they believe in. Most people say they believe there's an afterlife, but they're not planning for it. They're just planning for the next 20 or 40 that they get here. But if eternity is that long, then it's way too long to be wrong about your soul. You don't want to play Russian roulette with your soul, folks. Don't do it. Jesus warned, he said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing's worth it. Not even if you gain the whole world, would your soul be worth trading in? And so Abram, Genesis 12, 6, passed through the land. He was just simply passing through. You might want to just note that because that's kind of been the theme. Um, but let's go back for a second. Verse 5. Abram took Sarai, his wife, Genesis 12, 5, Lot, his nephew, all their possessions, which they had accumulated in the persons which they had acquired in Haran. Who are these persons? The Hebrew word is nefesh. It's literally translated souls. And there are some scholars do, that do not believe these are servants, but that they are souls that were one as proselytes as Abram shared his story about how God was working in his life. And those persons, and this is one view, may have joined the clan that was headed for Canaan. 
They heard the faith story and he took others along with him. That's one possible view. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Canaan is the land of Israel, just in case you're wondering. And it was obviously realized uh, later through Jacob and his offspring. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was in the land. So if you're Abram and you finally arrive in Canaan, you might've envisioned all that it would be. You know, maybe you envisioned that there would be certain things waiting for you. And then when you get there, what do you find? There's a bunch of people in there and nobody's smiling. You ever, you ever been to some places and you're like, does anybody smile here? Maybe they need to switch to caffeinated coffee. I don't know. Did they all switch to decaf? Is everybody having a bad day here? And I'm sure when Abram arrived with his entourage, maybe he had visions in his mind. How many of you have, you know, you've done something in your life and you've had this vision of what it's going to be. And then you get there and you go, oh no, <laughs> this is not the way I envisioned this happening. And Abraham's, Abram's there and the Canaanites there. And the Canaanites were told from other scriptures, there were giants, there were some big dudes there. And he comes to the Oak of Moray. By the way, Moray means oracle giver or teacher. And the great tree of Moray was the place where the Canaanites assembled to hear oracles from their soothsayers. They said when the leaves rustled, like with the wind blowing the leaves, they received a message and they shared it with the Canaanite population. It was like the Canaanites assembled for their spiritual meetings at the Oak of Moray and the wind blew and the leaves rustled and the soothsayer spoke a word from the gods. And it is there that Abram goes almost to say, there's a new God in town. <laughs> so he went as far as the site of Shechem, the Oak of Moray, and there are the Canaanites. And I'm sure that there had to be some nervousness and some feelings of, Hey, I wonder what's going to happen here. And Abram's certainly a foreigner in a land that God's told him he's going to own. That's a weird feeling. Um, many years ago when I, uh, had met with a search committee and I was uh, asked to be the pastor of this church, which has moved and changed names and grown since then, this was back in the summer of 1998. Um, I was asked to be the pastor. I accepted the job. I was still working a full-time job. And the first thing that my wife and I went to was a, I think it was a Thanksgiving potluck. And they had a long table out and they had all these people there. And my wife and I had only known one church in our whole Christian life. We'd been there for 10 years. And now we were at this other church and I was going to be the pastor, but nobody else knew except this pastoral search committee. So we went to this Thanksgiving potluck and all these people were there and they all had their little groups. And my wife and I walked in and we were like, I wonder if anybody's going to say hi to us. This is weird. <laughs> and it was a weird feeling because I was about to become the pastor of the church, but I felt like a foreigner and nobody really knew. And I think that sense may help us understand how Abram felt. It's like, God told me I'm going to have all this, but it's not realized. And people are looking at me sideways. And maybe there's even a sense that I feel like a bit of a grasshopper here. Um, one more time in Numbers 13, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers uh, 1327. Show you one more thing here. 1327. The spies are going to the land and they've been told to spy it out. Uh, Israel wants to walk into these promises of this promised land. This is when it's about to be fulfilled. But then there's another problem. Thus they told him numbers 13, 27 and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. This is its fruit. Showed him some of the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea, by the side of the Jordan. 
Then Caleb quieted the people, one of the two men that had faith and fully followed God before Moses. And he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. These there also, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. We were small in our sight and small in theirs. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. They were boo-hooing. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? You know how we create giants in our own minds sometimes? It's just awful. What's gone wrong? One thing, but you turn it into 15 things in your own mind. Oh, this, and then this will happen. I'm sure of it. And this, and you're like, has any of that happened? No, but Wow. You know, they call worry like being in a rocking chair. You move around a lot, but you get absolutely nowhere. Just worry, 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 worry. What if, what if, what if, what if? You know, they've done surveys and they talk about how much of what we worry about actually comes to pass. It's a very small percentage. And the percentage of things that come to pass that we worry about, we can't control anyway. So the question is, why do we worry? (laughs) But we worry because it's just human to worry. And so they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. (laughs) It looks like Moses is going to be replaced. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. I would have been... I would have done something different, but man, these are godly guys. They fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes in disgust. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, verse nine. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. This is faith. Their protection has been removed from them, them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Some of you need to mark that tonight. Do not fear them. But all the congregations said to stone them with stones. We don't like those people. They're too spiritual. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. See, the Lord appears at strategic times in history. And here's what happened. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. And then once again, God says, I'm going to take them out and make a great nation of you. (laughs) There's another intercession moment here. I mean, imagine if you were God, how many things do I have to show you until you trust me? Back to Genesis 12 and we'll finish it up. So Abram's journeying, but it's not easy. And you get the call and you get excited and you respond to the call and then you run into some giants and then you start questioning the call and God and you, did you get the right guy? Were we communicating clearly? Did I hear you right? Anybody been there before? Am I supposed to be here? There's giants in the land. There's no reception party. What should we do now? You know, the journey, a life of faith is a life that's going to be stretched. You won't grow unless you are stretched. Can't get back to my slide. You will not grow unless you are stretched, but nobody likes to be on the rack. Amen. I'd like to be taller, but the rack still doesn't sound like much fun. But God stretches our faith. Why? 
to make us more usable, to help us walk into the promises. So look at verse 8, chapter 12. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent, Genesis 12, 8, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Here's Abram. Um, Another critical moment in verse seven. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead for a second, but go back to verse seven. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him at a strategic time facing giants. The Lord appeared. He did that for Paul. He did that in other cases. He appeared and reiterated the promise and God will do that for us at strategic times in our life. And then he moved on. And twice he built an altar. He built an altar in verse seven. He built an altar in verse eight. What's an altar? An altar is a place of worship. It's a place to call upon the name of the Lord, but it's also a place of remembrance. It's almost like Abram was marking the territory for God. Do you know that when we look at Abram's life, it doesn't appear that he built a tower. It doesn't appear that he built a city. But it appears that Nahor, his brother, built a city in Genesis 24.10. But Abram didn't. The one thing that Abram built was altars, several altars in several locations. What a beautiful picture of his life. He built altars, places of worship, places that would last beyond his lifetime. And when you build altars in different locations, you build altars in the generation to come. You see, what's really going to last is not things, but people. And if you want to make altars to the Lord, one of the ways that you do that is by sharing your faith because the next generation needs to know of the goodness of God. The fact that he called upon the name of the Lord could be translated that he was publicly proclaiming the Lord or the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on verse nine. There's the journey. And he continued toward the Negev. So he's heading now towards the desert regions. Now, not only was there giants in the land, there was what? Look at verse 10. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the the famine was severe in the land. So he faces giants and then a famine. So you respond to God's call and what do you get? Giants and starvation. (laughs) Wait a minute. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what the preacher promised. If you come forward, Jesus is going to bless your life. And then you get giants and famine. David Hawking told a story many years ago. He said his family, he went into full-time ministry by faith. He left everything behind. And he said they were running low on food, so low that he had his little child in there in the high chair, and he had cut up the last hot dog that they had to give to the little kid. And he said he was so angry and frustrated with God. He said, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. Why? And he left the hot dog there, and he went bursting out the front door and tripped over several bags of groceries that someone had left on his front porch. And that's sometimes what God does. And Abram, you know, he's got possessions. He's got folks with him, but there's famine. And sometimes we feel like, Lord, I've followed you. You ever been here before? I'm trying to be faithful to you. And I keep hitting hardship after hardship. What are you doing? And the Lord stretches and he stretches us and he teaches us to live by faith. And so he goes to Egypt down to the south. So if you look back up at the map, uh, this is the natural place to go. If you're in Canaan and there's problems, you're just going to go down to the Nile region where there's always productivity and always food. Ancient writers used to say, whenever people were in trouble here, they'd go down here. And we see that later on in our Bible as well. So you'll read some commentaries and people say, Egypt's a type of the world and Abram made a mistake. He should have never gone down there. In the time of famine, he should have trusted God. That was the logical thing to do, but was it the spiritual thing? There's no record that he asks God. There's no record that he seeks the Lord. He just goes down there, which seems logical, but was it the right thing to do? And one scholar I read this week said, he didn't believe it was an overt sin of Abram. Abram didn't sin against God as much as he forgot God. 
And there's many times in our lives where we do the practical, logical thing. Well, this is what everybody else does when there's famine in Canaan. You go down to Egypt and we tend to forget the Lord. Sometimes in our business practices, sometimes when we're going through a test. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, and we'll move quickly through this last section. See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. By the way, ladies, Sarai's 65. And she's a beauty. This gives hope to all of us, does it not? 65. And he says, honey, you got it going on. You're a beautiful lady. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into this land of Egypt. And they're going to see you. And this is going to be a problem for me. And that's really what really matters. <laughs> and it will come about when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. And that doesn't sound too good to me. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, that I might may live on account of you. Honey, please just do this for me. <laughs> now, technically, Sarai was Abram's half-sister. So this was a half-lie. And you all know that half-lies are much more acceptable than full lies. Amen? No? How many of us do that, though? We say, well, it was... It was, <laughs> it was 40%. It was a half. If, if it's 51, are we good? If you get past the 50 percentile truth, error, lie. He said, this is what we need to do. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt 14, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh. Remember, there's a big group with Abram, so they're not going to sneak into town. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. There's a debate as to what happened here. Was it into his harem? Well, they say in history that if you came into like a harem situation, there was a time that went by before you went through processes and, and finally got to the monarch. So there's, even though it's possible that something happened here, most scholars say we don't think there was any shenanigans between the Pharaoh and Sarai. In fact, I think we're going to see how God stops it. So therefore he treated Abram well for her sake. Notice this, Abram's thinking, this is awesome. Half, half lies, half truths. He gave him sheep, 16, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, and just recently domesticated, according to historians, female donkeys and camels. Camels is what I was after. Just recently domesticated, very valuable. It's like getting a couple Porsches in a BMW. And was like, apparently lies can be profitable. <laughs> However, do you know that even though he got all these possessions, these possessions that he was to add to his wealth created the problem between him and Lot later. And that's why part of the reason they divide and Lot gets in all that trouble. And so we think, oh, hey, hey man, I'm getting, I'm getting bennies here, baby. You know, the, they said in the church, don't lie, but look, I got, a, I got a nice new red sports car here. But you know where that leads you? You may get instant gratification. You may get stuff, but you may not like how that turns out. And so the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. The Hebrew construction speaks of the severity of the plagues. And there are many who believe it's something like boils or skin diseases because of Sarai, Abram's wife. It could be this. Maybe it was Sarai's time in the rotation from the harem to the king. And before anything happened, I think the Lord said, Zoop! What's going on? And you might say, well, I know the end of the story and I know he's going go to go to Abram and he's going to say, why did you do this to me? How did they know? And it may be that Sarai was the one person in Pharaoh's house that didn't get the boils or the disease. And they looked at her and went, oh. You know, like Israel when they were in Egypt and how the plagues only happened to the Egyptians and the 
Israelites were kept from those things. And remember, all of this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the land of Egypt because this family is going to multiply in the land and a later Pharaoh is going to experience 10 plagues. And finally, he's going to say, okay, go. For a while, he says, oh no, you can't go. Then he says, please go and take some jewels with you. And so the pagan Pharaoh called Abram, probably filled with oozing boils or something like that. And he says, what is this that you have done to me? (laughs) Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? It all came out in the wash. And that's how every half lie and quarter lie happens. It ultimately finds us out. And he said, why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then here is your wife. (laughs) How you like this? Take her and go. Take her back, please. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away (laughs) with his wife and all that belonged to him. No uh, punishment, no retribution. Just please leave because the hand of your God is heavy upon me. And this whole scene of uh, the Lord's protection over the family of Israel Uh, is born out some years later as they sojourned down there. And they ultimately sojourned down there because of a famine. And Joseph's story will be later in the book of Genesis. And Joseph elevates to leadership. And then a Pharaoh arises that did not know Joseph. And then he attempts to wipe out the children of Israel. And then God's mighty hand comes through a later leader named Moses. And Moses becomes the deliverer. And the last plague that falls upon Pharaoh's household is a plague of the death of the, remember? Firstborn of both human and animal. And the people that are protected from that final plague that will ultimately cause Pharaoh to release his grip is people who are covered by the blood of a lamb. And that blood must be applied on the doorposts and the lentil, lentil. And some people have said that makes a sign of a cross. And I'll let you decide if you believe that or not, but it's pretty cool. It sealed the door. The place where covenants happened was in the threshold of a dwelling. And the door is a picture of um, God's protection and passing through. And so the door is sealed with the blood to protect from judgment. And God protects the people of Israel And Egypt, there's a great cry in Egypt that night, and there's not one household where somebody's not dead. And as Israel goes out in conquest by God's mighty hand, they didn't do anything but just trust in the Lord. The Egyptians, we're told in the Old Testament, are digging graves for their dead while the Israelites are going out to meet God, the power of Almighty God. A foreshadowing of this in the life of Abram, but this is our story. And here's where I want to end. Ours is a faith journey. And we're going to have a call. You all have a call in your life if you're a Christian. We're supposed to respond to the call and walk in a faith journey. But ultimately, our release comes from the blood of the Lamb. And we don't want to go and settle in Egypt or go halfway to Haran, not partial obedience, not half lies. We want to follow the Lord fully and he will take us safely home one day into his heavenly kingdom. And we're to trust him. Even when life is hard and confusing and there's famines and giants and you're faced with pharaohs and you wonder what's going to happen. And then how many of you, can say over and over, God intervened in my life. He intervened in surprising, unexpected ways because he loves you and because he's for you. Would you bow in prayer? Father, thank you so much for this wonderful text. And there's many lessons about faith here. Faith is the substance of things not seen. And we want to We want to walk by faith. We're told in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible, impossible to please God. But with faith, all things are possible. 
When our faith is directed towards the true God, not a faith in things that can't deliver, but a faith in the true God, then all things become possible. And thank you for Abram's journey. Thank you for the hope that he was imperfect, yet you still honored his life. And we're going to make our errors and we're going to make our missteps, Lord, but we want to follow you fully. We want to be people of honor, people who reflect the goodness of our God. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to know this is a marathon, not necessarily a sprint, but let us, let us run the race with endurance as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you keep your head and your soul bowed before God? How would he have you respond to this message tonight? Where do you find yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the little uh, signposts that we followed? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him fully? Have you trusted his death and resurrection for your salvation? Have you entered into a relational trust with him? If you want to do that tonight, now's the time. The devil will tell you tomorrow. The Bible says now. Now's the acceptable time. So would you open your heart? It's something like this. If it's you and you're not sure if you died tonight, God forbid, if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. Make sure. You can know. And it's something like this. I would encourage you to pray it out loud right where you are. Jesus, come into my life. Save me. I want to know you. And I want to walk with you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And I receive you as my personal Savior and my Lord. Please show me your ways. Teach me to walk with you in spirit and in truth. Maybe you're a prodigal tonight. Maybe you're that person with that call and you've resisted it and you parked in Haran, but you want to head to Canaan, even if you have to face some giants and famine and pharaohs. Just ask the Lord to help you to get moving in his direction. And then Father, for this precious congregation, thank you for who they are. Thank you for their passion for the gospel. Thank you for all the great things you're doing in and through their lives. Bless them richly, Lord, so that they might be a blessing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.